somewhere the gift of children. And as they are dependent upon us for pretty much everything, I pray that we can learn from them that we need to be dependent upon you for everything. Lord, uh, I pray that each of our kids would not only grow up to know about you, but would grow up to know you, to be known by you, and that uh, not one of them would be lost. And so, Father, uh, I pray your blessing upon the children of this church, and would you expand that group for your glory and because of your, your goodness. In your name we pray. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed with your leaders. And I don't know who that is, so. Well, this morning we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, but before we go to Hebrews chapter 3, I actually want us to turn to the Old Testament. I started with the first half of Psalm 95 after our first song, and I want to read now the last part of that chapter. So the beginning is really praising God for who He is. And then the second part of verse 7 to the end of verse 11, we read these words. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. There I, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now those words, according to the author of Hebrews, were written by David. So about 1,000 B.C. And David is speaking to his generation, warning them, but he's, he's using a story from Moses' generation, about 1500 B.C., to drive home the point. And so what is he alluding to? Well, if you have your Bibles, go back to Exodus chapter 17. And it's quite likely that he's talking about this event, chapter 17, 1 through 7, where we read, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why, do you bring us, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to go to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, 
and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now hang on to that story, and we will move ahead not that many months later to uh, Numbers uh, chapter 14. And we will read what the people of Israel do after they send the spies into the land to see the promised land that they were supposed to be given. And listen to what they say in Numbers 14, verse 20. Or got what God says. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. Why don't we pray God would teach us, and then we'll dive in, okay? Lord, um, our text today is in some ways is difficult, and in some ways is, is very simple. Lord, help us not only to, to read it and understand, but Lord... Would you grow us so that we might see you and trust you continually? And so, Father, on this Thanksgiving weekend, would we be people who are truly thankful as opposed to people who disbelieve and grumble? In your precious name we pray. Amen. So in 1500 B.C., roughly, depending on which scholar you read. God rescued a people from their difficult enslavement in Egypt. And he was doing that fulfilling a promise that he had made to his people. That they would be given a promised land. He made that promise to Abraham probably about 500 years before that. The rescue was of such wonder that even today in our culture... Not only are the people of God talking about it, but the culture at large talks about it. I, I'm still marvel that Hollywood, even if they get it wrong, they like to write about the Exodus. The rescue of the Hebrews is known in Scripture as the Exodus. And it, and it came with ten acts of God, or ten plagues. And, and they were of such a force that eventually they brought the mighty superpower of the day, the Egyptians, into submission, and they allowed the people of Israel to go. And it was very clear to all involved that it was God that was acting, not simply Moses. These plagues were of such magnitude, um, no one had any doubt that God was acting on behalf of his people just as he had promised. Now the book of Exodus tells us that God then led, led the people of Israel by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. You might remember that story. If not, I encourage you to go back to the book of Exodus and read it. It's fascinating. But God would then lead the people. And so as they're leaving Egypt, he, he leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. Now that's important. God led them there. Now, the story goes on that 
this superpower, the Egyptians, had a change of heart. They go, what do we do? We let our free labor go. And so they mustered their army, and their army comes charging after them. And in Exodus, what is it, chapter 12? We, we see the story of the people. Sorry, in Exodus 14, we see the people, they, they begin to, they, they see this army, they see this, this, this great sea in front of them. And in verses 11 and 12 of verse 14, chapter 14, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will the people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? Because they begin to grumble, going, What, what, what are we going to do? Did you leave, bring us here to die? So God brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. They've just seen these great acts of God. And God in his grace and says, Moses, touch the, touch the Red Sea, and the Red Sea opens up. They walk across on not wet ground, but on dry ground. Okay, it's astounding, astounding. They get to the other side, a million people. The Egyptians decide to follow suit. The water comes crashing down on them. The Egyptian army is destroyed. And we're told at the end of chapter 14, or the end of, uh, of Exodus 15, the people praise God, but at the end of chapter 14, we're told the, the people believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay? Following? So God leads them to this place. They grumble and complain, Moses, did you bring us here to die? God intervenes. Very next chapter, they praise God, chapter 15. And then in chapter 15, God then leads them to a place for three days they have no water. They get to a place and they see water, and you can just you can just see them going, ah, we've got some we've got some water, and we're told that God led them to a place of bitter water. What's God doing? They get to this place of bitter water, and what do they do? We're told in chapter 15, verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now God intervenes again, tells Moses, Throw this log in. The water will turn so sweet or whatever so you can drink it. Answers their prayers and another great act of God. Next chapter. God then does what? He leads them to the next place. But what's that place? We're told in chapter 16 it's a place without food. A million people without McDonald's. What do you think they're doing? They begin to grumble. Why'd you bring us here? So chapter 16. Look at verse 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Oh, life was good in Egypt. God in his grace provides food from heaven, manna, which would then feed them for the next 40 years. Another act of God. Very next chapter, chapter 17, God then leads them where? To a place without water. 
And what do they do? As we just read, they, they grumble. One writer of these events said, the Israelites were blind to the fact that it was they, not God, who was being tested. God was testing them to see if they really did believe in him, to see if they really did trust him, to see if they really did love him. The writer goes on, they then set themselves up as judges over God and said, God, you need to jump through these hoops. You need to provide this. You need to do this for us. And they refused to put their trust in him unless he performed what they demanded. They, in turn, put God to the test. Despite the fact that they had seen all God's great works. So why do I begin with this story? Because Hebrews 3 and the next week's chapter, Hebrews 4, will quote Psalm 95, which speaks of this story, some six times. Twice in chapter 3 and three times in chapter 4. And so if we don't understand this story, we won't understand what's going on in chapter 3. Are you following? Tracking with me? Okay. Let's, uh, let's now dive in to Hebrews chapter 3. I understand this is a lot of reading. But I think it's, it's of critical importance for us to understand this text, okay? Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our con confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Sound familiar? On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in, in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, day, in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews 3. As we look through Hebrews 3, I believe God wants us to, to see, or wants us to consider Jesus and to trust in Jesus, okay? So in verses 1 through 6, uh, he, he, he wants us to consider Jesus. Something we've been doing, chapter 1 and 2, okay? Take a look. He begins by saying, therefore. So what does he, what's he referring to? Go back to verse 18 of chapter 2, where we read, For because he himself has suffered, because Christ suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So that's in the back of our mind. In light of that, he now speaks, he begins to talk. He says, then he says, holy brothers, or if you got the NIV, holy brothers and sisters, okay? He's talking to all of the church. Holy brothers meaning individuals that have been set apart by God for his purposes. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He says to the church, he says to us, that we've been, we've been given a calling. God has spoken, in other words. God has spoken, and he's spoken about where we're headed. So it's coming from heaven and telling us where we're headed. A heavenly calling. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Pause and think about him. On this Thanksgiving weekend, stop and consider him. Take time. You know, park the truck on your busy day and, 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 and stop and think about who he is and what he's done. And, and he tells us again what we ought to think about. Verse 2. Or verse 1 again. Who is this Jesus? He's the apostle, meaning the sent one. He was sent to us from God. Like John, we all know John 6, 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world. But what about chapter 7, verse 17? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's the apostle. He's the sent one. God sent him to save the world. We're to stop and consider that about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Not only was he the apostle, but he was a high priest. We talked about that last week. We will talk about that moving forward. But he's, let's put, just put this, let's not dig into that one too much, other than he went before us. He went into the presence of God before us so that we could be in the presence of God. Consider Jesus, apostle, high priest. Verse 2, consider this Jesus who was faithful to God who appointed him. In other words, he did everything God told him. So in John chapter 17, verse 4, as Jesus is about to go to the cross, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Everything that God the Father gave to Jesus the Son to do, Jesus did, did fully. He was faithful. We're supposed to stop and consider him. Think about him. If we don't do that, our hearts aren't warm to him. Verse 3. Or actually, verse 2 again. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He's saying, just like Moses was in Numbers chapter 12, 7. You don't have to go there, but God said of Moses that he was faithful. 
Then he says something, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And he's saying, basically he's saying what he has been saying throughout this book so far. Jesus was better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Now he's saying Jesus is better than Moses. Now to the Hebrew ear, that would be like, that's a big deal. As much more glory as the builder of the house. He's saying Jesus is the one who's building the house or built the house. What house? Who? What is this house? Well, we'll get there. As a builder of the house is more honor than the house itself. For every house built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And then, so there's this, there's this picture of he's building the house, and the builder of everything is God. And is Jesus? Well, we already know from chapter one that he is God. Then in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. What is this house Moses was involved in? He was simply a servant, a faithful servant. But he was a servant that was pointing to, we're told, to testify to the things that were spoken later. He He was pointing to Jesus. So he was simply a sign. Saying, don't look at me. Look ahead. Look at Jesus. And then in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Ah. So Christ is not just a servant. He does simply working for the Lord. He is, simply, he is the son, which we learned in chapter 1, right? The heir of all things. And then, look at the end of chapter 6. And we are his house. This isn't the house of God. This is a building. It's the gathering place. But we the people, we're the house. This is just just a place we get together in. We We could get together across the road. We could get together in my house. But we are the house. Actually, the author of Hebrews, and I want to thank Tom for pointing this out to me, actually drives us home. Literally, he says, whose house we are we? Which isn't good Greek, and it's not good English. But he's driving home the point. We are that house. We the people. Christ built us. Christ went ahead before us. He's our high priest so we could enter into into the house of God. So we could be the house. He's the son. We are brothers and sisters to the son. You starting to pull this all together? You see, you've seen this picture. It's just, this, this is what Jesus has done. And, and, and on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we're supposed to stop and consider him. But just be amazed at who he is and what he's done. I'd like to put a period after that house. But did you notice the sentence doesn't stop there in verse 6? It continues. We are that house if, 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 don't miss that, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope.
you mean it's not just simply putting my faith in God at one moment and then I'm the house? Well, he's saying if we continue in trusting and putting our confidence and our, and our boasting in Jesus, if we continue kneeling before him and crying out to him, if we continue to give thanks to him as we read at the beginning of Psalm 95, then we are the house. That's what he's saying. People of Hebrews in, in, in this book, they were in danger probably because of difficult times, difficult things going on in their life, maybe persecution. They were in difficult times and they were they were they were in danger of wavering. Isn't what Jesus says, John chapter 8, 31, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples? If. So in the middle of our, our difficult circumstances, are we tempted to turn our eyes, to grumble, to complain, or will we consider Jesus? He's been sent from God. He's gone before us. He now calls us holy brothers, God's family. This Jesus, God's Son, will, will and can help us just as He promised. But I need to pause for a moment right there. Because isn't there other passages that seem to suggest that once we're his, we're always his? Yeah. Let me read some of those. Gospel of John. I mean, I could go to numerous places, but let's go to John chapter 5. John chapter 6 is really strong on that, but let's look at John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. Even stronger, verses, I believe, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Is the Bible, making, is the Bible contradicting itself? On the surface it seems to be, but... I think what we need to see is the Bible is not contradicting itself. Rather, the Bible is simply saying, examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine ourselves to see if our faith is truly genuine. And, and, and we know it's genuine if we 
continue to trust him. Now, now I'm not saying we don't waver at times and, 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 and go, how does this work? When, when, when life throws something at us, remember God is leading us. We may waver, but do we turn to him and look to him and, and seek him and, and believe in the promise that he will? People of Hebrews, in the midst of some great difficulty, Hugh says, was being tempted to set aside their hope in the return of Christ and the establishment of his everlasting kingdom and to place their confidence in other beings and things. And I think we struggle with the same. In other words, the people in the book of Hebrews were no longer kneeling before Jesus. No longer worshiping, thanking him, making joyful noise. But they were in jeopardy of grumbling and thinking that they might have found a better way. It looks like in their case, they were looking like going back to their old Hebrew ways. Well, consider Jesus. Let's move on. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to the end of the chapter. And very quickly, let's take a look at, we're called to trust Jesus. Notice in verse 7 begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's going to quote Psalm 95. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God wrote Psalm 95, not David. Or maybe God moved David to write Psalm 95. But he doesn't say the Holy Spirit said, past tense. He says the Holy Spirit says, present tense. In other words, his point is this word is living and active. It was not just speaking to the days of David, but it was speaking to us, it was speaking to the people of Hebrews, and it, was, and it is speaking to us right now. God's word is living and active, which he will tell us later on. And notice there's three important actions to help us to trust in this chapter. And I think this is very helpful, to, to help us to trust in Jesus. End of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice. Don't, don't rush over that. God speaks. He, he, we were told that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And how does he speak to us by his son now? Well, we listen to what those who heard from Jesus, when, when the Lord declared these things, he declared them to who? Peter, James, John, Paul later on. They recorded those things for us, and we're to sit at their feet and hear Jesus now. That's not a, that's not a word from the past. That's a word that's present and now living and active. Why do we come to church? Why do I open up this book? Why, why do I challenge you to open up this book on, in private? Why do I encourage you to go to a small group or get together with other men or ladies and read this book and talk about it? It's because today, if you hear his voice, if we, if we, if we are going to trust him, we need to continually hear his 
voice. But it doesn't stop there. The next line, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So we're to hear his voice, but we're not to harden our hearts. Now let's, let's go a little further. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then let's take a look at verse 13. But exhort one another, and then he goes, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think when he's talking about the deceitfulness of sin and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he has in his mind Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3? Serpent whispers in Eve's ear. Take a look at that tree that you're not supposed to eat from. That fruit. You won't die. Actually, you become like God. But suddenly that fruit looked good to her. But, but if she doesn't eat of it according to God, what happens? She lies life, right? She won't die. But suddenly she sees that fruit is good and she, she listens to not the voice of God, but she listens to the voice of the serpent. And she goes, oh, that fruit looks good, but it's deceiving. And she picks the fruit, she eats it, she shares it with her husband. And what happens? World War One, World War Two. Like, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but you know, it's it's, it's not good, right? We're told not. We're told don't stop believing into this world, and 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 think that they will somehow bring us joy, relief, happiness. These promises are deceitful, and they don't lead to rest. They don't lead to the promises of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Continue to hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Continue to hear him. Now, there's one other action that I think is really, really important that I think we, as community grace, need to really, really wrestle with. This is verse 13. We live in a very individualistic culture. And we as a church have bought into that. Verse 13 says, but exhort one another once a week. Every day. But exhort one another every day. I, do I need you every day? says I do. But hold it, I, I've, I've, I've gone to seminary. I'm probably good till next week, aren't I? No, the text says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Elroy needs you. And I, I don't just need you to talk about the claims game, but although I'm looking forward to talking about that because we won yesterday. But I need you to point me to Jesus. Middle of the night last night, I was discouraged. I got up and I had to get on my knees and, and look and hear the voice of Jesus. I look forward to seeing you today. I look forward to praying with you today. I look forward to hearing from the Word today. I look forward to gathering around the table today. But Monday I need you. Not all of you, okay? But you need me. You need each other. So that when we get to the place where there's no water, and we get to the place where there's no food, we remind each other of the Lord and his promises, and, and, and he is faithful. And he's probably simply testing us to see if we will trust him. exhort one another daily. That means to encourage. That means at times to rebuke. So what? I think there's some in this room who've never at any time have put their trust and their confidence in this Jesus. This text is for you. The things the world offers are dead ends. They won't bring joy. They won't bring happiness. They won't bring life. They won't bring eternity. My challenge to you is turn to, turn to Jesus. Trust him. And the text is also, I think, speaking to those of us who've known Jesus for many years. We need to consider him regularly. We need to listen to his voice regularly. We need to understand that our hearts can be hardened and we're not to harden our hearts but continue to listen to his voice to his promises as found in the text not what you think he's saying but what he actually has said and we need one another so intentionally take a look at your life and go okay how's it happening in my my world. Let's pray. Lord, we began with Psalm 95 where it stopped and just praised who you are. And Lord, when we're confronted with the great difficulties of life, would we gather around each other and point each other to you? And Father, as we walk through this world and, and, and the many difficulties that comes our way, would, would you help us to consider you, to hear your voice regularly? Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us to trust you and, and remember who we are, brothers and sisters, part of the house of God that you are building. And help us to remember that the work you began it's a good work, and you will complete it. 
And so, Lord, help us, even now, even today, <laughs> to hear your voice and trust you. In your precious name we pray. You know, every week we gather.